You're listening to Life in Deep Elms podcast. My name is Rachel, if I haven't met you guys before, and Joel and I are the pastors here at Life in Deep Elm. So last week we started a new series that's called Personally Present, and the heart behind this series was to talk about who we feel like God has invited us to be as a community. This idea that we, we really, as a community, feel called to live missionally. And so we wanted to talk about what does that even mean? What does it mean to have a missional life, to live in that way? And so Joel kicked us off last week with just kind of talking about what is the kingdom of God? What does the kingdom of God look like? And so if you missed that, feel free to go back and listen to the podcast. Today I wanna talk about the heart behind this missional life that we're called to. And to start that, I feel like I need to dispel a myth about missional life. And this is it. Often missional life is expressed as something that's out there. Uh, I found this on the internet and I thought it was perfect. This is the way that I grew up thinking about missional life. You were in the church and you're sent out and going out there somewhere in some way, that's what it means to live on mission. But I want to suggest that rather than missional life being something that happens out there, somewhere, whatever that means to you, missional life is actually an interior work. Living missionally is an interior work. And I didn't understand that whenever I was growing up. Um, I I thought in this way. Uh, In fact, when I went to study um, at college, my first declared major was cross-cultural ministries which is another way of saying I thought I was gonna be a missionary. Because I thought in order to live in a missional life, you had to actually like go far away to some distant land and that is how you were sent out. And I couldn't in that 17 year old brain of mine find a way that missional life and normal life actually went together. So this idea of like you go every tongue, every tribe, every nation, that's how I understood it. And so I get into these mission courses and the quintessential experience for me was every Friday in one of my classes, the professor would end the, cor- the class by showing this video of some unreached people group. And then after he'd show this video about these people who had never had any presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, he would turn out the lights And he would invite us to sit in darkness, to remember that there were people out there somewhere who had no representation of Jesus Christ. And something about that just didn't resonate with me. My declared major of missions lasted all of one semester before I changed it to pastoral studies that then developed into biblical studies. And I don't know, there was just something about it that I knew I had prayed for years that God would send me to to people that no one else wanted to go to. That was my prayer. God, I just want to go and minister to the people that nobody else wants to go to. And I chuckle now because God kind of answered my prayer. Um, Other pastors describe Deep Ellum as the place that churches go to die. (laughs) So people don't generally want to come and pastor in Deep Ellum, but I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. And when I was in college and studying missions that first semester and wondering where God would send me, I had no idea that he would send me just 35 minutes up the road, that it would just be a hop, skip, and a jump over here, that being sent doesn't mean going somewhere far out there always. It may mean that for some. But there is this sense of it's living missionally isn't something that's out there. It's an interior work of the spirit. 
And so if I was going to describe what it means to have a missional life, to have a missional heart, it may really just be as simple as this, caring for our communities. It really might just be that simple, caring for our communities. Or you might define it in this way. Missional life is being who God created you to be in the context of community and caring for that community. Maybe to have a missional life, it means to be who God has created you to be, not alone, not isolated, but in the context of community. And the way that that is expressed is, for, is through how you care for those God has put in your life. And in order to do that, there's this interior work that I believe is at the heart of missional living, at the very heart of it. And so in order for us to kind of look at that idea this morning, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 4. There's a story in John 4 that I feel like really encapsulates this idea. So I want to start in verse 3. And there's going to be quite a bit of scripture reading up front. So everybody ready for story time? Okay, let's go. So he, talking about Jesus, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared to her, I am the one speaking to you. I am he. 
Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. I want to skip down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man is really the savior of the world. So when we read this in our modern context... There's a couple of things that the original readers would immediately pick up on that we may miss. And so to start off this morning, I want to kind of highlight for you some of the red flags that the original readers would have immediately picked up on that we may be a little fuzzy on. So the first thing I want you to notice about this story is she's a Samaritan. And the gospel writer put in a parenthetical note so that we understood Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And so the question comes up, why does her ethnicity matter so much? Jesus clearly didn't have an issue with Samaritans. When he was teaching a group of Jews, and this is recorded in Luke 10, he tells this parable about several people who walk by a man who has been beat up and left in a ditch. And you have these religious people who are Jews who walk by and ignore the person. But who was the hero of the story? The Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan was the hero of the story. Jesus depicted the Samaritan as being willing to go out of his way to help the man. So Jesus clearly didn't have any prejudice against Samaritans. But many Jews did. Why? Who were these Samaritans? What was the story? Well, You have to go all the way back to the 8th century to understand why there was so much tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. So if you guys don't mind, I used to be a professor. I'm going to put on my professor hat for just a minute and give you a little history lesson. So in the 8th century, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And in the 8th century, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. And the majority of the Jewish population was taken away into exile. But some of the Jews were left in their country. And so you have this very small population of Jews. And then one of the approaches that the Assyrians took whenever they, they, when a country fell to them is they would bring in people from other parts of their empire. And they would move them into these locations. And the goal was is that whatever population was left would be assimilated into the Assyrian culture. And so what happened is as Jews married other people from Assyria, they became an ethnically mixed race. They became integrated into this culture that the Jews who left and went into exile saw them as traitors in many ways. They were now ethnically impure. They were now impure on a religious level. So that was the beginning of the issue. Fast forward 200 years and another exile later. So 8th century, we have the exile of the north. 200 years later, we've got the exile of the south. And what happened then is Babylon came in and they overthrew the southern kingdom. Well, a little bit later, Persia overthrows Babylon. No, this gets complicated. Persia overthrows Babylon, and King Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, allowed the Judean exiles to come back to Jerusalem. When they came back to Jerusalem, their temple had been destroyed, and so the Samaritans offered to help the Israelites rebuild the temple. 
Well, the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. They completely rejected the offer of help because why would they want an ethnically impure race, a race of people who had assimilated into another non-Jewish culture to help them rebuild their holy site? Well, the Samaritans still saw themselves as Jews. They held on to their Jewish heritage, and so this was an extreme rejection for them. So what they did is they went to a mountain called Gerasim, and they built their own rival temple. For hundreds of years after that, there was this extreme rivalry between these two countries. In 128 BC, the Jewish people actually went to Mount Gerizim and destroyed the Samaritan temple. About 100 years after that, Samaritans came into Jerusalem and desecrated the temple during Passover by laying human bones throughout the temple. So there were these extreme rivalries that ultimately came to a head after Jesus' day when Jerusalem, the rebels from the Jewish community went in and totally destroyed the city of Samaria. So whenever this woman says, why are you, a Jewish man, talking to me, a Samaritan woman, she was pointing out over a thousand years of hostility and division between their two communities. And the people who read John's gospel would have picked up on that. A thousand years of hostilities. And the fact that Jesus was there in Samaria speaking to her, it also speaks to why a missional life doesn't start out there. It begins as an interior work. Because most Jews would have had no category for God sending them to a Samaritan. You think about how Jonah responded when God told him to go to the Ninevites. That's how most Jews would have responded when Jesus, if, if God had sent them to Samaria. And so the thing about being on mission is that our mission cannot match God's own if our interior life leaves space for prejudice and bitterness. I want you to hear me say that. Our mission cannot match that of the kingdom of God. If our interior life, if in us there is space that is being left for prejudice and bitterness. God's kingdom is so much bigger than that. And the thing that is so wonderful about walking with the Lord and being on mission with him is if we continue to walk with him, he will deconstruct prejudices in us, bitterness in us that we didn't even know was there. If we will walk with him, he will show us things in our heart that are really, really hard to see. And this morning, I want to share something with you that... um, I'm really embarrassed by, and embarrassed isn't even sufficient. Um, I'm really ashamed of it, and I've never shared it publicly and explicitly before. Um, There was a time in my life where if I was, just to be honest, which is what I'm trying to do today, um, I would have to say that I had racial prejudices in my heart. I mean, I lived them out. And I could make up all kinds of excuses for it was a product of how I grew up, the culture that I was in, but at the end of the day, it was my heart, and I was the one who was living them out. And, you know, an example of the, you know, I I never would have, it was never explicit. You know, it wasn't like there were people that I hated because of the color of their skin. You know, if someone had challenged me, I'd be like, oh, I have friends who are of other races. That doesn't, having a friend of another race 
doesn't mean that we don't have prejudice in our hearts. Can we just all acknowledge that? <laughs> that doesn't give us a card for the other stuff that's going on inside of us. And an example that was true for me that some of you may relate to um, is I was, as I was growing up, I was told you don't date black guys. It was a category that wasn't applied to any other race. It was n I was never instructed on that with anything else. I just knew that if I ever brought someone home who was black, that would not be okay. And so I didn't date black guys. <laughs> and I didn't call it a prejudice, I called it a preference. And I'm really ashamed of that. You know, that I had, I had friends who were black, but my family wouldn't have welcomed one into our family. We wouldn't have welcomed someone who was black into our family, and that I'm really ashamed of. And when I went away to college, I had the opportunity to begin to deconstruct some of the things that I had been taught as I was growing up. And one of the really hard things to look at was this reality that I had grown up with certain prejudices that I had justified because they were subtle. They weren't explicit, like the horrific examples that we've seen over the course of the weekend and white supremacy in Charlottesville, but it was racist nonetheless. And I am so grateful that God began to deal with my heart and began to challenge me and to put me in a place where I had to wrestle with what that was doing to me and how I was relating to other people. And if you're listening to this and you're feeling a little disappointed in me, that's okay. I'm disappointed in me too whenever I think about what my heart was like back then. And over the past weekend, on the campus of the University of Virginia, we have seen the kind of anger and violence and devastation that comes when people are divided because of their ethnicity or because of their religious traditions. And it's just not okay. It's not okay whenever it's expressed in extreme ways and it's not okay whenever it's being expressed in subtle ways in our heart. This weekend, a 32-year-old woman was killed and 19 people were injured because a car plowed into people counter-protesting. It's not okay. And it was not okay for me to be raised in a way that we justified racial prejudice as preference. It wasn't okay. And it's not how I'm raising my kids. My family has put on, been put on notice. Um, I will be ecstatic if I have biracial grandchildren. <laughs> you know, I just, I, I want a better world for my children. I want them to know that the heart of God opens us to love without those kind of barriers. And I'm just so sorry that I contributed to the sin of racism for the first 17 years of my life. And I'm so grateful that over the last 17 years, God has just systematically pulled those subtle and unconscious biases out of me. And I trust that if there's more that I'm not seeing, he'll continue to do that work. And so a missional life, friends, isn't something that happens out there. It's something that starts in our interior world with God pulling up things in us that are really hard to look at. That's where it starts. 
because we cannot love well unless we have allowed God's spirit to go in and deal with us in a way that opens up our hearts. And so my prayer would be that if there's any part of us that struggles with prejudice, that God would give us the courage to let him convict us, to bring us to a place of repentance, and to let him do that work that interior work of breaking those things down. And man, God's faithful when we open our hearts to do that kind of work in us. This week I was reminded of a quote from Nelson Mandela and he said this, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they can learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than the opposite. And if that goes for hate, that goes for bias and indifference and preferences and prejudices as well. God's spirit can undo those. And what Jesus came to do, what did he come to do if not to teach us how to love well? How to love in a way that surpasses all human understanding. And Jesus sitting at the well that day talking to the Samaritan woman reminds us a missional life does not leave room for prejudice. It doesn't leave room for bias. It undoes that in us. It undoes that in us. A missional love leads us to a place where we love the very people others would withhold love from. It takes us to a place where we love others. We love those where others would withhold love. So those who read John's gospel would have looked at this and they would have been like, it would have struck them incredibly that Jesus was moving past the socio-ethnic barrier. But what's fascinating is that wasn't even the most potentially offensive part of the narrative. Even more offensive to the people who would have been reading this was that Jesus, a man, was speaking to a woman that he was speaking to a Samaritan woman. And so that's the second thing that his, his readers would have noticed. According to the Jewish sages, men were to avoid conversation with women, so much so that according to the law, a man could divorce his wife if she spoke to another man on the street. I mean, they were very serious about this, and that was just in the Jewish community. Talking to a woman was listed among one of six things that was considered absolutely abhorrent for a scholar to do. So you have Jesus crossing this gender barrier, speaking to this woman, and it was really beautiful because Jesus spoke to her, and the thing about a missional life is it's a deeply personal work where the spirit shapes how we see and interact with others. And I think you guys have probably noticed that in our culture, we have issues with men and women still struggling to relate with one another. You know, there's the sexual stuff that gets in the way. There's social biases, like um, men being unemotional, women being too emotional. And being a woman in ministry, I have had my fair share of experiences where men and women end up in the same room with me and don't exactly know what to do with me. I once had a senior pastor's wife tell me that my goal in life should be to help Joel get the highest paying job that he could so that I could stay home and raise our children. 
she had no frame of reference for the fact that God was going to send us to this place where when we first agreed to come, we weren't even gonna get paid. (laughs) You know, and the thing that I love about a missional life is it takes us to a place where our interior world is such that we don't relate to people on the basis of stereotypes anymore. You know, Jesus did not relate to this woman on the basis of a stereotypical gender role. (laughs) His missional life gave him a new way to relate to her because he was able to see her as a part of the family of God. And so where some men would have walked up to the well and seen her and viewed her as a threat to their holiness, and some women would have walked up to her and seen her at that well and viewed her as a threat to their marriages, Jesus walked up to her and he saw her as a member of the family of God. And wouldn't it be amazing if that is how we related across gender? Not on the basis of stereotypes, but on this basis of being a part of the family of God. And that is the kind of interior work that happens when we're living out a missional life. When we read this story, the third thing that people would have noticed, this woman came to the well alone. And this clues us in that she was not accepted even among the Samaritan women in her community. She was a social outcast. She was a social outcast. And in the same way that Jews don't associate with Samaritans, men don't associate with women, in this culture, the pure did not associate with the impure. Rightly or wrongly, as people read John's gospel, they would have made certain assumptions about her morality based on what we learn of her marital status and the time of the day that she went to the well. Nobody in this culture worked at this time of the day. Unless it was harvest season, this is when everybody took a break because it was so uncomfortably warm. People came and lugged water at the beginning of the day and, not, and at the end of the day, but not midday. She came at midday because she was not welcome in that community. We learn as we read that she had had five husbands and the man that she was with at that point wasn't her husband. And that would have been a cause for her to be ostracized in her community. So she went to the well at the middle of the day. And as we look over this, on a natural level, there were so many barriers. You have the socioethnic barrier, the gender barrier, the moral barrier, so many barriers that should have kept her and Jesus apart. But I love what verse 4 says. What does it say? It says, now he had to go through Samaria. It says he had to go through Samaria. And when you use that term and you read it in the Greek, what it means is it was necessary for him. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria. And so it's important for us to question why. Why was it necessary for him to go through Samaria? Well, again, Professor Hat, the thing you need to know is it wasn't the only route. There were actually three routes from Galilee to Jerusalem. So he didn't physically have to go through Samaria. Some people would suggest that it was potentially the quickest route, but that's debatable. Even if it was the fastest route, Jesus obviously wasn't in a hurry. I mean, he spent two days in Samaria after the townspeople came to him. So it wasn't because he was trying to get through Samaria quickly. So what does that leave us with? It leaves us with this. Jesus had to go through Samaria because this woman was there and God was seeking her. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Because this woman was there and God was seeking her. This was what happens when someone lives out this interior life 
and are able to be moved by the Spirit. You know, this woman had no idea when she went to the well that day that she was going to encounter the Messiah. She was just going about her day. She was just going to the well to get water. Only in hindsight would she realize the importance of that moment. It would only be when she looked back on it. But Jesus knew he had to go through Samaria because why? Missional life doesn't start out there. It is an interior work. And throughout the Gospels, we get this picture of Jesus being moved and prompted and and led by the Spirit of God. That's something that happens inside of us, these impressions, these guidances. And the Spirit can lead us in that way too if we'll just listen to him. When Joel and I were in grad school, we were invited to go on a trip to Europe to study churches in a post-Christian culture. And it was, it was a great deal. All of our expenses were gonna be paid except for our airfare. That was our only responsibility. So we had like a six months notice. So I think we bought our tickets very far in advance. And when, when it all came in, we stuck one itinerary in a little drawer and we put one up on our refrigerator. So the day came for us to go to the airport, and we arrived at the airport so relaxed. I mean, we had gone and seen the new Star Wars movie that was released at midnight. We had spent the morning at the pool. We get to the airport. We walk up to the ticket counter. We are ready to go on an all-expense-paid trip to Europe. Really great, right? So we're standing there, and all of a sudden, it becomes obvious that something was wrong with our ticket. So they're looking at our ticket, and it's like the right flight number, the right time. They just can't find our name in the system. And all of a sudden, this lady looks at me and Joel, and she says, your flight left yesterday. We had forgotten that in all of our shopping around to get a really good price on the flight, we had decided to leave a day earlier than everybody else. And so there we are, standing at the airport in Springfield, Missouri, with a ticket that is worthless, our return flight voided. I spent two hours trying to negotiate a flight out of these people and left there with nothing, absolutely nothing. It was the longest 20-minute taxi ride of my life back to our apartment. So Joel and I are sitting in our apartment, and I just can't get rid of this feeling that we have to go to Europe. We have to go to Europe. Joel was like, it's over. (laughs) And I was like, no, we have to go to Europe. (laughs) And so I was like, let's just go over to the seminary, go to the computer lab, and just, just see what kind of prices are out there for tickets. And I mean, the, the ones in Springfield were totally undoable. I mean, we, we could not make it happen. But I kept looking in this wider and wider circle of airports until we finally hit Houston. And there was a flight leaving out of Houston. And all we had to do was get in the car within the next 30 minutes and drive through the night, 12 hours, to get there and we could make it. In addition to which, we would have to literally spend every bit of money we had to pay for that ticket. And so we look at each other, and we're like, I think we should do it. And so we call. (laughs) Notice I said, I think we should do it. Joel was like, um. So we called our parents. We called our mentors. And at the end of this very short period of time to make the decision, we decided we would do it. 
And what we could not have predicted was that that trip to Europe was what ultimately set us on a path that would bring us here to life in Deep Ellum. It was there in Europe that we saw Copenhagen Christian Cultural Center, which gave us the first time we'd ever seen this, this idea that was floating in our head of a church community that was open to the wider community seven days a week actually being lived out. And I don't know why it was necessary for us to buy two sets of tickets to get there. <laughs> I, I have thought, God, couldn't you have just like had us look at the itinerary that was literally on our refrigerator that I had in front of my face every time I opened it for months? But we knew we had to go to Europe. And Jesus knew he had to go to Samaria. And God's spirit will lead us if we will realize that missional life doesn't happen somewhere out there. It's this very personal, intimate work of the spirit inside of us. And so when I think about the story of John 4 as a whole, what I see is it is a depiction what happens here, Jesus crossing all these barriers, going to Samaria, knowing he had to be there, offering this woman living waters. All of this is a depiction of Jesus' interior life. All of it is a depiction of his interior life. This interaction between this Jewish man and the Samaritan woman, that is the gospel. That is what it looks like when the gospel is lived out. There is no barrier big enough to keep a person from expressing love. <laughs> it's the gospel, the kingdom of God is just that big. And that is what happens for us whenever we begin to live out who God has asked us to be and created us to be in the context of community. The gospel begins to be expressed in these ways that are so big and so wide, and they are a source of living water for the people who are around us. I started meeting with my spiritual director almost two years ago now, and in the course of our meeting together, there was a period of time where for an entire month, I prayed that God would give me patience. I thought that was a thing Jesus and I were talking about. I just needed more patience. I was tracking with him, he was tracking with me. And I was really having a hard time because I just, I was so frustrated with myself and my lack of patience with others, my lack of patience with God's timing, my lack of patience. And, and so I go to my spiritual director and I start sharing this with her and I'm sharing a month's worth of prayers and I'm writing all of this and I'm sharing the, the verses that I've been praying. And, and she just, after all of this processing, she just looks at me and she says, Rachel, I think God has given you all the patience you need. You are actually a very patient person. She was like, you, your issue isn't patience. She said, you, you are just weary. And when she said that, I just started to bawl. I mean, cry and cry and cry and cry. And it was in that moment that God began to undo in me, and it was the beginning, not the end, God beginning to undo in me a lifetime of having believed that my worth and value came from what I did and what I achieved. I was weary 
because I live in a culture that celebrates personalities like mine who are able to do and achieve. And this culture reinforced this false self that that was who I was. But in that moment, Carol, being who God had created her to be in the context of community, brought to me living waters that have brought me closer and closer to eternal life because it's me getting rid of that idea that achieving gives me value is giving me the freedom to actually be who God has created me to be. And so in our lives, whenever we begin to live missionally, we become these avenues of living water for other people. The kingdom begins to come through us, not because we're trying so hard and we're doing so much, but because we have allowed the spirit to cultivate this interior life where in moments God can give us just the right words to say that begins to undo things that have messed us up for years. Missional life is not something that starts way out there. It's something that begins in our heart. Last week, um, we had a really beautiful moment as a community. And sometimes, I think without context, we don't realize how beautiful some moments are. And when we're looking at John 4, really the heart of the story comes in in verse 23 and 24. And this is what Jesus says to the woman. He says, yet a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And Jesus was sent to this woman in Samaria despite the fact that outward markers would not have set her up for people to think of her as as the right disciple. But God sent Jesus to this woman in Samaria because she was this. She was someone who was open to worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And that's what God seeks. He seeks people who are willing to worship him in spirit and in truth. And Jesus went to great lengths and took serious risks because as Joel talked about last week, she was good soil. She was the type of person whose heart would allow the kingdom of God to grow in it, for it to be bigger than her. And so there are these moments in our community that sometimes we don't realize are as special as they are without context. And as I said, last Sunday was one of those. Um, Ben, a member of our community, read a poem during the, the worship time. And this poem was a wrestling with Jesus. Do we really accept that what Jesus came to do was to teach us how to love, that that's part of what his mission was, to love us in a way that then showed us how to love others, and that we don't have to have all of the other stuff figured out, that Jesus is what is central. And as I was sitting or standing over here watching Ben do that, I realized that it was a holy moment that I was seeing someone worship in spirit and in truth because our friend Ben, I told him this morning, I said, Ben, I watched you and all I could think is that man loves Jesus. And he said to me, yeah, I think I do. (laughs) But that I think is an important part of where Ben is in his journey right now. He doesn't have faith all figured out. But as a community, we got to watch someone living missionally, 
being who God created them to be in the context of community, teaching us that it's okay to struggle and to wrestle, that we are formed through those processes because missional life isn't something that starts out there. It's this interior work, this thing that God does in our heart. And if anything in John 4 demonstrates that missional life is an interior work, think about what happens at the conclusion of this story. When the disciples return to Jesus, the woman leaves her water jar and she goes back to the town. And she tells them, come and see. Because after her encounter with Jesus, something has happened in her heart and she wants to share it even with those who had hurt her and rejected her. And so she becomes the very means through which the Lord brings the Messiah, not just to her, but to her entire community. She returns with this gospel, this good news. And what is the good news? The Messiah has told her everything she has ever done. And isn't that just what Jesus does to us? Isn't that just what he does to us over and over again? He showed me places in my heart where I was dealing with prejudice. He led us to go to Europe. He showed me that I was weary. And every time he tells me everything I've ever done, he is leading me, showing me the path of what it takes to be the person that he has created me to be, and then giving me the courage to live that out in community. It is a scary thing for God to tell you everything you have ever done and then be willing to bring that into the context of community. But when Jesus came to this woman and she realized he was the person that she asked for a drink, she said, let me have this living water so that I will never thirst again so that I don't have to keep coming back to this well to drink from it over and over again. And on one level you go, yeah, that makes sense. She lived in a culture where water was scarce. Of course she would want that. But on another level, what she was asking for was this deliverance from the isolation and the loneliness and the stigma of being who she was. And Jesus said to her, I will give you living waters and if you drink of this, you will never thirst again. And where do we land at the end of this story? This woman has been reintegrated into her community. She's opened up her life. She's been everything that she's ever done in front of people. And what happens? Her whole community comes to know this gospel. They come to know Jesus. They receive the good news. Friends, missional life isn't something that happens out there. It's about this interior work of slowing down, of letting God tell us everything we've ever done and then teaching us how through our weakness and our imperfections and all those things about us that aren't celebrated, how his kingdom can come. And so this morning as we close, I just wanna take a moment for us to pray together as a community. And for God to just help us with this heart thing because it's easy to look out and want to do something. It's hard. The hard work is letting the Spirit speak to us about those things that are inside of us. Letting Him transform our hearts. So God, I just ask this morning that you would remind us outward appearances are irrelevant. You are looking for people who 
who wanna do the hard work of going deep with your son and allowing your spirit to, to teach us what it means to be who you have created us to be in the context of community. And Lord, that means something different for every person in this room. And so I ask that you will teach us, that you will show us, that you will guide us, that you will direct us, that we won't try to just find things to do, but we will let your spirit guide and lead and instruct and transform us. And through that process, may we just find your kingdom at work all around us and that we have been invited to be a part. And so I pray these things in the strong and sure name of your son, Jesus. And together all God's people say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine on you. May he be gracious and compassionate to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Love you guys.